the most important thing for Jesus' disciples at any time in history is not to know the exact time when Jesus is coming back, but to be ready for when he does come back. That's what Jesus is hammering home here in Matthew chapter 24, and for most of chapter 25, he tells us that we're not going to know when he's coming back. He says that, no one knows the the day or the hour. And then he gives us five illustrations about how we should be aware and need to be watching both why and how we do that in this passage as we wait for the return of our Master. And so if you have a Bible this morning, I'd invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24, we will read in, starting in verse 36, Matthew 24, 36, this morning. The word of the Lord says this, But concerning that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left, Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect." Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, My master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him. And at an hour he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept, but at midnight... There was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. 
This passage, like I said, really contains five illustrations as Jesus is emphasizing the need to be ready for his return. We read four of them, and then the fifth we read earlier this morning. And in the first two, we, we see warnings about being ready. That's what those illustrations are about. And in the final three, we see instructions on how to be ready. How should we be ready for Jesus' return? So in these first two illustrations, we see these warnings. Verse 42, Jesus warns us, stay awake so that his return does not catch you unaware. In other words, don't be like the people at the time of Noah, right? They had heard Noah. He was that crazy man talking about a flood coming and flooding everything, but they didn't believe him. They thought it was completely impossible, probably. And like most people, when they hear something that seems crazy and outlandish, they just went on with their lives and didn't let it affect, affect them. But then, just as they were going about their normal lives, one day the flood came and destroyed them. When Jesus comes back, people will be going about their normal lives. People will go to work. They'll be getting dinner ready. But it's in the midst of those normal events that Jesus will come back and gather his people and punish those who aren't ready. The second warning is in verse 44. Jesus says, you must be ready for his return. Otherwise, you're going to be ruined. If you're not ready, you'll be like someone who just got robbed of everything they possess. You'll be ruined. That's the second illustration. So Jesus says, be ready for his return because we know he is coming. So we must be ready. Otherwise, we'll lose everything if we're not ready when he returns. And so these are really the options that Jesus tells us. He tells us, be ready or be destroyed. Those are the two options before us. Be ready or go to hell. And so you can see this is, this is high stakes. This is eternal life or eternal suffering. So it becomes really important to understand what Jesus means when he says, be ready. We know he's coming back. We want to stay awake and be ready and be doing what we need to be doing as we wait for his return. Because eternity depends on it. And so fortunately, Jesus explains what it looks like for us to be ready in those last three illustrations in our passage this morning. Now, before we look at those, I want to make sure that we pause and notice an important theological topic in this passage. So sometimes when we hear about the return of Jesus, you hear it preached on, you'll hear about the rapture, right? The rapture of Jesus coming and taking Christians out of the world, and then usually there will be seven years until Jesus comes back the second time, and that's the end, right? But this passage, as we read carefully, we read about how it talks about the second coming. It says that when Jesus comes back, those who are ready will be rewarded, and those who are not will go to hell. In other words, this is talking about final judgments, right? This is how it speaks of the return of Jesus. You're either ready or you're destroyed in the flood. You're ready or you lose everything, right? And so since this passage talks about not the rapture, but the second coming of Jesus, I think it's fitting here as we think about Jesus' second coming to think about what does the Bible teach on the topic 
of the second coming, the topic of the rapture. And so since this passage doesn't fit that idea, where else in the Bible do we see that? Does it fit elsewhere in the Bible? And so I want to look at that this morning. A couple of things we need to say up front as we take this slight excursion into the topic of the rapture. One is that if you've never heard of the rapture, that's okay. This is uh, just teaching about Jesus' second coming. And so either way, whether you're familiar with it or not, you'll learn about the second coming. I will also frame this conversation by saying the rapture is not a question of whether or not Jesus is coming back, but is a question of when he's coming back. Uh, to be a member of this church, uh, we hold that Jesus is coming back. It's in our statement of faith. But to be a member of this church, we don't require that you hold a certain position on the rapture of when Jesus is coming back, what exactly that's going to look like. The Baptist faith and message is not specific in that area. So that means that this is not a matter that we should cause division and major conflict over. Uh, Baptists believe that we can be in the same church and understand the Bible differently on this topic. So saying all of that, we want to be a people who are a people of the Word. So let's dig in and see what the Bible says about this topic. And I'll say up front, as I look at the Bible, I don't think the Bible teaches that there is a pre-tribulation rapture of Christians. So we've already seen in this passage that it's not talking about a rapture. It's talking about Jesus coming back one time and then the final judgment. There are several passages that talk about Jesus coming back, but none of those passages talk about Jesus coming back in two parts. It's always Jesus comes back and that's the end. And so if you stop and think, as I have done, about what passage in the Bible directly teaches about the rapture, I can't find one. The passages themselves don't talk directly about it, and that in itself is very convincing to me that when Jesus comes back, it's not in a two-part rapture and then the end, but it's just the end when he comes back. And so that's why I don't think there's a pre-tribulation rapture. I think there's only one return of Jesus that we wait for. Now, I grew up at a church that was heavily dispensational and believed in the rapture, that Jesus would return, and then seven years, and then would be the end. It was a great church. Uh, I learned a lot. It was a loving people. I loved it. One of the passages that was used there and is often used to support the rapture is 1 Thessalonians 4, where it talks about Christians meeting the Lord in the air. You may be familiar with it. Some people say that refers to the rapture. As we think about this topic, I don't think that refers to the rapture. Here's three reasons why. One, that passage talks about people being raised from the dead at that time, right? The, uh, the passage says that the dead are raised and gathered to Jesus. Then those who are alive and remain will be gathered together to him in the air to meet the Lord in the clouds, and thus we will always be with the Lord. So the rapture does not include, I've never heard anyone teach that the rapture includes a resurrection from the dead. 
Also, if we look at Revelation at the end, it seems clear that the resurrection happens at the end, not before that. So that's one reason. Two, here in Matthew 24, Jesus says very similar things, that he comes back at the end, and that's when he'll gather his elect from the four corners of the earth. Chapter 24, verse 31. And so it seems clear that since Matthew's talking about the second coming, the finality of it, 1 Thessalonians seems to be talking about the same events. Christians are gathered at the final coming, the second coming, one-time event, not before that. And lastly, when it says we meet the Lord in the air, that word meet is only used two places in the Bible, two other places. One is here, which is why I thought it fitting to talk about this topic this morning. In chapter 25, verse 6, it talks about the virgins coming out to meet the bridegroom. They are there, they're waiting, then they go out to meet the bridegroom, and then they come back into the house, right? They go out to meet him, they come back with him. The other place that this is used is Acts 28, 15, where the disciples hear that Paul is coming to Rome. They're in Rome. The disciples in Rome hear he's coming. They go out to meet him, and then they come back with him into Rome. So it makes sense to me that the other place in 1 Thessalonians where it's used would mean that we are here on earth, we go to meet the Lord in the air like a welcoming party, and then come back with him to earth as he comes to bring his kingdom. And I think that fits with Revelation 19 as well when it talks about the Lord's coming. So that is why I don't think 1 Thessalonians 4 is referring to a rapture, but it's actually talking about the end, the finality of Jesus coming. Another main passage that sometimes is used, and this is the last one we'll look at this morning, is Revelation 3.10 as support of the rapture. It says this, because you have kept my word, this is Jesus talking to the church, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. So some say this refers to the rapture, I don't think that's the case. Again, a couple of reasons why. The phrase, those who dwell on earth in Revelation, has a specific meaning. It means non-believers, not the entirety of everyone on earth. Revelation 13 talks about the whole earth following the beast, yet we also see in Revelation that there are clearly Christians that during that time who don't follow the beast, so the whole earth can't be literally everyone. It means those who aren't Christians, those who are of the world. So it means that God will keep his people from the judgment that is coming on unbelievers. That doesn't require that Christians be taking, taken off the earth to be saved from that judgment. In fact, I would say that we see throughout the Bible that generally God keeps people from trials without removing them from the situation. The clearest example I can think of is in Exodus with the ten plagues, which has a lot of overlap with Revelation when you think about it. But remember, how did, how did God keep the people of Israel from the judgment? It wasn't by taking them out of the land. They were in the land when it happened, but he protected them in their city so that all of the rest of Egypt experienced it, but they did not. But they were still there. And so we see that God keeps Christians from trials without taking them out of the world. In fact, God usually keeps believers through times of trial. That's the consistent teaching, especially in the New Testament. 
when we see that God holds on to us and keeps us, refining us through the trials, but not letting us be lost. That's what Jude means when he says God is able to keep you. And so for those reasons, I don't think Revelation 3.10 is referring to a rapture. So that's not all the passages that people might look at when they think about the rapture, but I think those are the main ones, and I think that's a good sample size. Again, the rapture is not explicitly mentioned in the Bible, and because these main passages that are used to support it, I don't think actually are saying that. That's why I think that Jesus coming back is a one-time event. It's not split into two where he comes back and takes the church, and then there's seven years, and then the end. So, you'll have to be a good Berean Christian on this topic. Study the Bible. Be convinced in your own mind what the Bible teaches on this topic, but I do think this is the witness of Scripture. So, what does all this mean? Why do we take the time during this morning to talk about the idea of a rapture? Does that even fit in with the main point of this passage, right? If I don't think the rapture is explicitly talked about in the Bible, why are we talking about it? Well, the main point of this passage is Jesus is telling us to be ready. And we see some of those themes in this chapter. And frankly, if there is no rapture, that seems to raise the stakes even more. Because as I think about it, God's not going to give a warning sign to the entire earth where millions of people just disappear and then people have to rethink whether God is real and whether the Bible, what the Bible says is true. If Jesus is just coming back and that's it, then that means there is no seven-year warning, so to speak. We can't wait on this. It means we need to be ready now. The people around us need to be ready now. That's the urgency that Jesus is trying to get across in this passage. And that urgency comes out in these first two illustrations. And so once Jesus emphasizes the urgency of being ready, that he comes back and final judgment comes at that point, then we need to think about how to be ready. And so Jesus continues to show us with the final three illustrations what it means to be ready. He's coming. We need to be ready. How do we do that? How do we not get caught off guard? How do we stay awake and wait for the Lord? Well, Jesus tells us, and you'll notice that he's not really telling us that the difference between people who are ready and people who aren't ready, he's not really saying that it's what they believe. You'll notice in all these passages, it doesn't have to do with that. Now, we know clearly from the teaching of the Bible that faith precedes and produces good works. So that's assumed here in this passage, that Jesus is not saying we earn our salvation by the good things we do, but he is emphasizing to us that Christians will live a certain way that we must produce the fruit of what God has done in our lives. If we have been changed, we will look different. And so Jesus emphasizes that, and that comes to the forefront as he explains how to be ready. So four ways to be ready for Jesus' return throughout these illustrations. One, delay your gratification. Notice this contrast in verses 45 through 51 with, this, with these two servants, right? There's the blessed servant who's faithful in taking care of the household. And then there's the wicked servant who sees the master's away and then he rewards himself. The, the good servant waits for the reward for when his master comes back, he, then he receives his reward. 
The wicked servant sees his master away and he indulges right now, right? So he is treating himself instead of serving the Lord. That kind of self-indulgence, that kind of rewarding ourselves and exalting ourselves now is not a sign that we are faithfully serving Jesus. Faithfully serving Jesus means that we wait for our reward when he returns. We're not trying to be like the prodigal son and get our reward now, but we are waiting for the Lord. So what it means to take up our cross and follow him. We forsake earthly pleasures in anticipation of heavenly gains. So number, that's number one, delayed gratification. Number two, how do we be ready? Serve the household of God. You notice the faithful servant, the faithful and wise servant, is serving the household of the master, verse 45. First Timothy, First Peter clearly talks about the household of God as the people of God, the church. And so if we are going to be prepared for when Jesus comes back, we need to be loving his people. We need to be serving our brothers and sisters, nourish their faith, encourage them, correct them, pray for them. First John is clear that if we do not love fellow Christians, then we do not love God. And that is clear from what Jesus says here. And so if we're gossiping or slandering or dividing the church, or if we're taking advantage of the church to get ahead or to get praise and recognition, then Jesus is warning us that we are in danger of being destroyed when he comes because that is not how his servants behave. Number three, start getting ready now not later. How do we be ready? We start now. We don't wait. We see in this, this next illustration of the, the ten virgin, virgins in 25, 1 through 13, that they had to wait longer than they expected, and some were ready and some were not. We've been waiting a long time to us. seems like a long time we've been waiting for Jesus to come back. It's been 2,000 years now, roughly. But these virgins also seem to be expecting the, ma- the, the bridegroom to come sooner, but he was delayed. So they were, some were prepared and some weren't for that. And so every detail of the parable is not explained to us, but the point of this parable is clear. You can't wait until the last minute to get ready for Jesus to come back. You can't wait until the last minute to start obeying and living a life of holiness and following the Lord, right? Obedience means now. We must start now to live that life of following God and obeying Him. It's also something we can't outsource, right? We can't just borrow some of this from other people like these foolish virgins wanted to borrow some oil. We have to be living it ourselves. Each person must prepare themselves now for the return of Jesus. One commentator said this on this parable. It said, Readiness, whatever form it takes, is not something that can be achieved by last-minute adjustment. It depends on long-term provision. And if that has been made, the wise disciple can sleep secure in the knowledge that everything is ready. So start getting ready now. Don't put this off. Be prepared now for the Lord's return. Number four, use God's gifts. We see this in the parable of the talents in verses 14 through 28, right? The servants who are ready 
in this parable are the ones who use the master's money that he gives them in order to make a profit for the master. Likewise, we are ready for Jesus' return when we use what God gives us for his glory. Use what God gives you. Don't waste it. That's, that's what the wicked servant did, right? The master gave him something and he did nothing with it. That is why the master was upset. The master still received his one talent, but he did nothing with it. At least you could take it to the bank and get a minuscule amount of interest for me, right? But he did nothing with what God had given him. Philippians 2, 11 and 12 says that God is working in us so that we will be using what he gives us in order to do good works and serve him. And 1 Peter sums this up as well. 1 Peter 4.10 says, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. As good stewards, the same language as this parable, good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. You stay ready for Jesus by using God's gifts to serve him and to serve the church and the people around you. These are the things that Jesus points to and tells us, this is how you stay ready for my return. So staying ready, really when you think about it, doesn't mean that our life will look extraordinary. Right? You'll probably end up doing a lot of the same tasks that non-Christians around you do. You'll go to work. You'll prepare food. You'll go to sleep, just like we see in these passages. But being ready means that you'll do those things as a servant of God and as a servant of others, living a life of good works that is different from those who don't know the Lord. Jesus is clear. He is coming back. We don't know when, but he is coming. So be ready by obeying and being holy in your life. Let's pray together this morning. Father God, we thank you for your word. God, we want to be people of your word more and more. We want to love it more. We want to study it more. We thank you that you give us what is often difficult to understand or sometimes confusing passages in the Bible so that we have to think about it. I pray that that will drive us to think about it more and more than as we think, we pray that you will give us understanding, even as Paul told the Timothy, think on these things and the Lord will give you understanding in all things. Lord, we pray that for us this morning as we continue to study your word. Lord, we pray that we would be ready not just in our heads and believing what is right, but in our lives, that that would transfer from our head to our heart and flow out through our hands and our feet to serve you. Continue to change us. Forgive us of when we do not do this as we should. Remind us of the urgency of preparing today, of starting these good works, living this life of obedience and holiness today, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.